All right, if you have your Bibles or on your phones, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark. So in the New Testament, you have Matthew and then Mark. And we're going to spend a lot of time going through this Gospel. So this will take us all the way up until Easter of 2022, the next few months, which means all of us in the room should be able to read through at least one Gospel this year. 16 chapters. It's the shortest of the four Gospels, and it hits hard. And so I'm going to read the first few verses of the chapter, and then we'll dig in, all right? Mark chapter 1, starting with verse 1, and we're going to go all the way down to verse 20. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right off the bat, Mark does not mess around. This is the good news of Jesus, and it's the good news pertaining the Son of God. Jesus is not like any other person ever walked this earth. He is the Son of God. Verse 2, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment and a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. Now that's important because John the Baptist, in the words of Jesus, is the greatest man to walk the planet. There's no one greater than John the Baptist or the words of Christ. And here he's saying there's someone coming who I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. I'm not worthy to touch his dirty feet. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. There you see the God that we serve. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three different identities, all the same nature. Three in one. That is how big our God is. Three distinct persons of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and yet one in nature, one God. Verse 12, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and the angels were serving him. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. That's the second time Mark mentions good news. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And now let's see what that looks like. What does repent and believe the good news? What does that look like? We get four examples from our dudes fishing. As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, with the higher men, and followed Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we come to a gospel, 
As we come to see the good news of your son, Jesus, I pray that we see it with fresh eyes. Open up our eyes to see the glory that belongs to your son. And then help us respond to his call on our lives. Lord, don't let us leave the same as when we enter today. Lord, please move, please speak, please open up our minds and our hearts, help us hear from you. Clear our minds from distractions, open up our hearts to hear your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, just a little bit of background on Mark. Mark's not one of the 12 disciples, not one of the 12 apostles, but he was with a guy that was with Jesus all the time. Mark is the secretary translator for the Apostle Peter. And basically, <clears throat> what you see in Mark is an eyewitness account of what happened in the life of Peter as he walked with Jesus. We have some good evidence of this. Papias, who was a bishop from the year 60 to 135 A.D., recorded this. He said about Mark, he said he was a secretary and translator for Peter who wrote accurately all that Peter remembered. And so here is a guy that would go on missionary travels with Peter, that would be around Peter as he was talking about Jesus and would just write down exactly what Peter was saying. And we know from last week that the Word of God is inspired by God, that Peter wrote and talked and Mark wrote and remembered exactly what the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, wanted in the Bible. And that's what we have in the Gospel of Mark. And so when you think of Mark, Think of, uh, one, a missionary. Number two, think of an associate of Peter. Next, we also see that Mark is short and to the point. There's only 16 chapters here. It's not hard to read through this gospel. 16 chapters. It can be done in one setting. The word immediately or right away is used 42 times in this gospel. There's an urgency to the gospel of Mark. He wants to get things done. He wants us to see who God is and then how we should respond to who God is. So it's interesting. 42 times in this gospel you have this word ethos, which means immediately or straight away, and it's only used 12 other times in all the New Testament. Mark's in a hurry. He has an urgent word for people who are in a desperate situation, which leads us to the audience. Mark was written to Christians living in Rome. And you see, the people in Rome don't have a background in the Old Testament. They don't know the Old Testament. The Romans. You know what's happening in Rome in around 65 A.D.? The city was burning, and Nero, the emperor, blamed it on the Christians. And as a result, they were being persecuted. If you were gathering together in Rome in 65 A.D., you weren't gathering like we are today. It would be late at night, all the lights would be off, we would be hiding in someone's house downstairs and make sure nobody could see us. What was happening is Christians were being arrested and thrown to wild dogs, thrown to lions and set on fire. They were being persecuted. It's a very dangerous time to follow Jesus as Mark is writing this gospel to this church in Rome. It's no accident that Mark starts out and continues to beat the drum saying, this is good news. This is good news. This is the gospel of God. This is the gospel of Jesus. And when you're scared for your life, when you've lost loved ones to persecution, 
you're in a desperate state to receive some good news. That's exactly what you need. And I think that's exactly what our city needs. Now, no one's being arrested for following Jesus. No one will be thrown in jail for showing up at a Sunday gathering. No one will be put to death for reading their Bibles. But make no mistake, we live in a desperate city. Our neighbors are starving for good news. And they can go after politicians, or they can go after money, or they can go after power, or they can go after whatever their heart's desiring because they are desperate for good news. But only the greatest news will satisfy. And so when you see verse 1, understand this. Mark is delivering this on purpose to people who are desperate to hear the good news. And this is what they hear, the beginning of the gospel. And that's exactly what gospel means, good news. And the good news is Jesus, the Son of God, has arrived. And so that is what we're going to dig into over the next few weeks. We're going to see what happened in the life of Jesus. What did he do? What did he accomplish? Who he was? And what does that mean for us? And you've got to understand, until we understand the identity of Christ, we'll have no idea how to respond to his invitation. Identity determines our response. You, you guys know this. If you have cell phones, you get a call, you check it. I have something that says spam risk. Have you guys gotten any of those calls? Spam risk from all over, different cities, people I don't know. This lets me know I don't need to worry about answering this call. Now, I have another name and number in my phone that if it pops up and it says J-U-L-E-S, that call is getting answered every time I see it. My wife is on the other line. I'm going to, because the identity determines the response. You see, some people see Jesus as a good teacher. If Jesus is just a good teacher, then you can listen to some of his teachings, but it doesn't have to change how you live your life. If Jesus is just a good guy that has some good moral teachings, it might have somewhat of an impact on how you live, but it won't change your life. The identity changes everything. And here what Mark is saying is Jesus is the Son of God, the one who was promised, the King of kings whose government will be on his shoulders, who will ensure peace and will reign and rule forever. You see, that identity changes lives. And then when Jesus offers an invitation to follow him, there's only one correct response. Let's go. Identity determines the response to the invitation. So you see this in, in Mark chapter 1. It's again and again in this gospel, the disciples miss it. They, they miss it. They, they know Jesus is special, but they don't know that he's the Son of God. But you want to know who gets it? Demons get it. So he's walking around and Jesus casts out a demon and the demons call him the Son of God. You want to know who else gets it? A Roman soldier. Some of the, the toughest dudes that are the furthest away from God understand who Jesus is. But some who spend the most time with Jesus and should know him miss out. And you wonder what that does for me? That encourages me. That lets me know that it doesn't matter 
If you've grown up in church or you haven't grown up in church, if you know anything about the Old Testament or you know everything about the Old Testament, you wonder what that says to me? God can open up anybody's eyes to see the glory of Christ. Far, near, it's not an obstacle for God. That's very, very important moving forward. Because people have to see who Jesus is so they can respond correctly to his invitation. And so we see, 1 through 8, that Jesus is the promised one. Jesus asked his disciples later on in chapter 8, who do you say that I am? He asks us the same question. And you have to answer that. I cannot answer that for you. Who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus asks his disciples that question, and every gospel you'll see it, and that is what hinges your eternity on how you answer that question. So I want you to get in your mind right now, don't answer it out loud. How do you respond to that question? Who is Jesus to you? Is he a good teacher? Is he some guy you know a little bit about? Or is he the Son of God who died on the cross in your place for your sin, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of your sin? You see, that question is the most important question of your life. Who do you say Jesus is? Mark makes it clear. Verse 1 through 8, Jesus is the promised one. Talks about, he, he quotes a guy, Old Testament prophet named Isaiah. Isaiah is long-winded. It's a long book in the Old Testament. But in chapter 40, this is what's quoted. Chapter 40, 3 through 5, we read this. A voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain will be leveled. Uneven ground will become smooth and rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear. And all humanity together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, that's ringing in the ears of the people that heard this letter. The glory of the Lord has appeared. Now, in Hebrews 1.3, we see that in Jesus, the glory of God is perfect. This is what I mean. Hebrews 1.3. If you're taking notes, this is a verse you should know. This is a verse you want to know. Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 3. It's one of those to get in your mind and get in your heart. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That's who showed up. That's what Mark is telling the people. Hey, remember about the prophets and who they said was coming, the Messiah, the Christ? He's here. He's here. The glory of God is here. When you see Jesus, you see God's glory. There's nobody like Jesus. That's what Mark is trying to tell the people who are suffering in Rome. That's what Mark is trying to tell us today. There's nobody like Jesus. The promised one, the Son of God, He is here. But not just that, Mark keeps going, and you see this with the baptism, which makes it clear. As he's baptized and comes out of the water, you see the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove, and the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You see perfect unity in the Trinity. And now this is, this is what I'm, 
I want us to understand, because when you think we serve a God who is three in one, one God, three persons, how does that work? Have you ever tried to describe something that you cannot describe? You ever try to describe something that you can't describe? I can go back. It's been a long time. I can go back to my wedding day. I'm standing right next to my grandpa and my brothers, and the doors open, and my wife, the bride, starts walking down. I cannot describe the beauty that she looked. Now, I can tell you the dress was white. That doesn't help anybody with a picture, does it? All right, everybody knows the bride's dress is white. I, I can't explain the beauty that I see coming down. Now, the gap between how big God is and how limited my mind and languages to describe how big and awesome God is fails to show you the glory of our God. And so when you start thinking about God, God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit. There's three persons, but there's one nature, all equally God, all fully God. How does this work? We're trying to describe a God that created us, and it wasn't a hard thing for him to create. God's bigger than us. His ways are better than ours. And yet it is important to understand that there is God the Father, and there is God the Son, and there is God the Spirit. Now listen, that is a whole sermon series in and of itself. We're not going there, but what I want you to see is that when you see Jesus, this is the Son of God. Fully man, fully God. We talked about this at Christmas. Jesus, who is eternally God, became man. The Son of God. Next, we see this in verses 12 through 15. You see the temptation of Jesus. It says, immediately the Spirit drove him to the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, which is going to be important here in a little bit, and the angels were serving him. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. What is the good news? The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom has come. Why? Because the king has arrived. So right off the bat, Mark is showing you, hey, just so you know, this, this is who Jesus is. He's the son of God. You need to know that. He's the one the prophets promised was coming. You need to know that. He's the king of kings who's going to reign and rule forever. You need to know that. That's wrapped up in the identity of Christ. Tracy, when we look at your identity, you're a teacher, right? As part of your, is that all of your identity? No. Are you a coach? Yep. Is that all of your identity? Nope, just some. Are you the number one dad? Of course. That's what his hat says. Uh, he's also a husband. He's also a believer in Christ. Right? That's who Tracy is. And you need to know this about Tracy if you're going to know Tracy. Right? And the same is true about Jesus. If Jesus is the Son of God, don't you think we should know him? We should know Jesus better than anybody else on this planet. we got to have a hunger for the Word of God so that we can see the Son of God. This is who Jesus is. Identity, identity leads to a right response. I was talking, uh, the, the girls were up, and, and here's the problem. At our house, we have two daughters share a room, Balin and Camden, right? Fourth grade, sixth grade, and this is dangerous Balin's in Spanish, and she's got a little confidence now that she knows a lot of Spanish, right? And so she's in there counting to 20, and Camden's counting along with her, right? She won't be outdone. And 
They get to 20 and they start saying a word. Now listen, I've taken five classes of Spanish. I know how to count to 20. And I know that 20 is bainte, 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 right? I could even spell it if I had to, but I'm not. But I go in there with confidence. Keep it down over there. I go in there with confidence and I tell Balaam that. And she goes, oh, dad, my teacher was wrong then. And she's from Spain. Right there, I know I do not want Balaam going into school tomorrow and saying, hey, Miss so-and-so, you know my dad said this is how you're supposed to say 20. Right? I don't want that to happen because it's based on identity. If there's a lady teaching Spanish who is from Spain, I would go with her over your dad who took five semesters and struggled in each one of those classes. Right? Your identity determines how you respond. You have to get this right on Jesus. You have to get the identity right. And I want you to, to see this. I, I think it's interesting. Mark also gets people to think back to Genesis. Do you notice that? Do you notice that? When's the last time we've seen the Spirit hovering and descending? We see it in Genesis 1 at creation. We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in creation in Genesis 1 and 2. It's talking about let us create, let us do that, let us create man in our image. And, and so again, and so now all of a sudden we see the triune God who created all things good is now actively working all things new. I also want you to think of something. What happens right after creation? Right after Adam and Eve are created, they're saying, hey, you can enjoy any tree in the garden, just don't go to this one tree. Right? And what do they do? They go to that one tree. Now, if you have your Bibles, go to Genesis 3. This is important to see. I want us to see this because the creation story and the baptism and temptation of Jesus go together. Right? Adam and Eve in the garden, was there any sin at this point? Before Genesis 3? No. What did they, who do they enjoy in the presence without divide? God. Adam and Eve enjoying the presence of God. Perfect relationship, perfect fellowship. And Satan sees this. And what does Satan do? He goes to Eve, goes to Adam. And in verse 1 you see this. He said to the woman, did God really say? Did God really say? <coughs> Satan keeps on having the conversation with Eve and says, no, God doesn't want you to eat this because He doesn't want what's best for you. Say, no, when you eat this fruit, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so what Satan does is get to Adam and Eve to question the goodness of God and question the Word of God. And so when Satan sees Adam and Eve enjoying perfect fellowship with God, that's why we were created. Satan attacks it. And he attacks it by getting people to question the Word of God and the goodness of God. Now, fast forward. What just happened in the baptism? You see perfect fellowship, right? The Spirit descending on Jesus. The Father saying, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. The last time a man enjoyed 
perfect fellowship with the Father was in the garden. And Satan whooped them. If you keep reading in Genesis 3, there's consequences to their sin. Right? They're kicked out of the garden. As a matter of fact, before they're kicked out of the garden, if you look at verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. Like, how awesome would that be to be there in the presence of God? That's a good thing. We hear God's coming. But look at the response. And they hid from the Lord God. Up until this point, they enjoy perfect fellowship with God, but now they are hiding from God. That's always what sin does. That's exactly what Satan wants to do in your life. He will offer you the world if it keeps you from enjoying the God who created you and whose glory you should live for. So we see what's messed up in the garden is made right in the wilderness. All right, so that's what happened. Um, look down at verse 15. God is handing out consequences and he's talking to Satan. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So right there, we see that there's a promised one coming who will crush Satan. All right, we go back to Mark. Go back to Mark. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was enjoying perfect fellowship with the Father, and he's being tempted by Satan. What do you think Satan was tempting? Well, we know. We know this from Matthew and Luke, how Satan was tempted. How did God tempt Adam and Eve? Did God really say, right? What's the last words uttered by the Father to the Son that everybody hears? That's out there with John the Baptist, the crazy dude that eats locusts and drinks some honey. What's the last thing we hear that God the Father say to the Son? This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. Satan heard that. Listen to his response. Matthew 4, verse 3. Then the tempter approached him. And you've got to understand, Jesus is in a vulnerable state. Listen, if you go without food for a day, your stomach starts to growl. You get hungry. If you go without 40 days, you're close to the deathbed. So Jesus is in the wilderness. He's fasting, and Satan shows up. And listen to what Satan says to him. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God. What's he doing? Questioning the Word of God. God says, You are my beloved Son. Satan says, If, if you're the Son of God. right? The Son of God doesn't starve. The Son of God doesn't uh, waste his way in the desert almost be eaten by a wild animal. That's not how the Son of God is. And so Satan comes and goes, attempt to approach him. If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus doesn't do it. Responds with the word. Next, in verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with the hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Isn't it interesting that Satan quotes Scripture to the Son of God, who inspires the Word of God. Jesus says it's not for us to test God. 
And then we see the last temptation. Again, the devil took him up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and in their splendor and said, I will give you all these things if you will just bow down and worship me. Jesus responds, no one should be worshipped except for the Lord alone. You see, Satan is getting him to question what the Father has already said. You are my beloved Son. You are the Christ. You are the King who will reign and rule forever. And Satan's saying, nope, there's a better way. I know better. You can't trust God. And you want to know what? Satan offers you the same temptations. You want to know why it's difficult to enjoy the presence of God? You have an enemy that will make sin look great. So let's say you're walking. Maybe you set a New Year's resolution. You want to spend some time in the Word. You want to be faithful showing up as the people of God gathering on Sundays. You want to listen to music that glorifies God. You want to know why that's going to be difficult? Because as you're walking with Jesus, Satan sees that and he will disrupt your relationship with God. And you want to know how he disrupts it? By showing you sin is glorious and that God's word can't be trusted. God's goodness can't be right. Satan knows better and he'll offer you everything but God. But you want to know where that always leads? Always leads to regret shame, guilt, and death every time. But there's good news. Satan never touches Jesus. And what you'll see is just, I would like to call this just a little warning shot. Satan is coming after the heels of Christ and he just keeps picking his foot up, putting it down, picking it up, putting it down. And soon one of his steps are going to land on Satan's head. That's what the good news is. The one who came to crush our enemy is here. His name is Jesus. He is the Son of God. That's what you see. What was messed up in the garden can be made through, made new through the Son of God. What was broken in the garden, our relationship with God, can be reconciled by Jesus in the wilderness. That's the identity of Christ. And then you see his invitation. And we've already read this. But the call is to repent and believe. Repent and believe. And this is important. I want us to understand this. The gospel is good news. It's good news. The gospel is not, hey, I need you to try harder. I need you to be a better person. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a declaration of, hey, this has happened. This has happened. This is the greatest news you will ever hear. The Son of God has showed up just like He was promised. He's here. And when all of that brokenness came through a tree in the garden, it'll be made new on another tree that you and I didn't get to go to, but we deserved. And it's the cross. And that's where Jesus marches. That is the good news. This is what has been done for us. When we couldn't get to God, God came to us. The Son of God is here, and He picks it up and puts it down, picks it up and puts it down, until eventually He gets to a hill called Golgotha. He lays down on a tree and is nailed to it, and then He's buried. But He doesn't stay in the tomb. Father raises Him from the dead three days later, and then He walks around, shows up to 500 people, and then after 40 days He ascends to the Father where He is reigning and ruling today and he's coming back 
And that is the good news. That is the gospel, the righteousness that God requires of all of those He created, including Adam and Eve. You can't measure up. You don't meet the requirement. But in Christ, you get the reward. This is the beautiful picture. This is the good news. When I stand before God, He's not going to say, uh, Ben, because you were the pastor, come on in. Because you served at Redemption Church for however many years He has us here, you get to come on in. I don't get in on what I do. I get in on what has been done. That's the gospel. That's the good news. This has happened in history. The Son of God came to die on a cross so that I can have His righteousness, His perfect life. He went in the wilderness and was tempted and yet never sinned. Man, in my wilderness, I've messed up. I've sinned and sinned and sinned. And yet, through Christ, I can have fellowship with the Father. And so the invitation that Jesus offers is what? Repent. Turn from your sin and believe the gospel. Believe that your righteousness is in me and not yourself. Believe that you're made new in me and not yourself. Believe that you have perfect fellowship with the Father because of what I'm doing and what I've done and not yourself. That's the good news. The bad news is you don't measure up. The good news in Christ, you get it. Perfect righteousness. You can't get any better. Jesus is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. Lays His life down. On the cross, He pays for my sin. And He gives me His righteousness. That is the good news. And so when He gives the invitation, repent and believe, that's all I have to do in this life. And that's all I'm going to do for the rest of my days. I'm going to be turning from sin, and I'm going to believe Jesus is exactly who He said He is and did exactly what He said He did. I'm going to repent and believe. And that's a daily basis. I want you to see that repentance should be the normal part of the Christian life. When you mess up, the temptation is for you to hide like Adam and Eve did in the garden. But you know the one who crushed the serpent's head. So if you're going to hide, hide in Christ. Confess your sin to God. And listen, we've done some awful things. We've done some things that would give us nothing but guilt and shame. And Jesus covers that with His blood on the cross. So that before God, He doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. So confess it, leave it behind, and believe the gospel. And then we get some good examples here with James and John and Peter and Andrew. Is Jesus better than the job you work? Now, with teachers going back to work, that's an obvious answer, of course, right? But you want to know what comes with the job? A little bit of security, right? A salary. I'm able to pay bills with the job. And when Jesus comes to the fisherman, he says, hey, follow me. And you want to know what the response is? They follow him. Do you know how fast they followed him? Immediately. And then he goes on down, and I feel bad for Zebedee. Zebedee's just chilling out, doing what he does every day, and he depends on his boys and the hired hands. And Jesus says to James and John, hey, follow me. What do they do? How fast? Immediately. 
And so now they're leaving behind family. They're leaving behind their profession. And I want you to catch that. Because this is what I'm tempted to do when, when I hear that. Follow me. I'm going to ask some questions. Uh, where are we going? Would be a question. And, and, and you know what? This happens again and again in the Gospels. Jesus is doing things that do not make sense to the disciples. And at one point, Thomas says, Jesus, if you go back to Jerusalem, they're going to be putting you to death. And his response is, well, let's go and die with Jesus then. It's already happening in chapter 1 of Mark. Did you know that? So after Jesus calls these four men and they follow him, he drives out a person with an unclean spirit, and then he does a lot of healing in the city of Capernaum, and then there's these huge crowds that are flocking after him. Now, what do you think Jesus does? Do you think he orders the disciples, hey, I need you guys to form lines, bring the most urgent cases up front? Does he organize that way? This is what Jesus does. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. You see the priority that Jesus gives to spending time in the presence of the Father? Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. Like, like do you see the urgency and, and probably the rebuke coming from Peter? And he does this again and again. And I love that Mark is honest with Peter's approach. Hey, Jesus, I don't know if you know this, you're kind of a big deal, you need to show up. People are depending on you. And how does Jesus respond? He said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. You see, the disciples don't set the agenda for Jesus. Jesus is the agenda. And I think it's interesting. There's a lot of people that are willing to follow Jesus if things go well for them. I'll follow Jesus if that means I'll find my husband or my wife. I'll follow Jesus as long as I get a good paying job. I'll follow Jesus as long as my health is in good shape. But you see, you're not really following Jesus. Jesus will not be a means to an end. You want to know why you follow Jesus? You follow Jesus to get Jesus. And I promise you this. If you're following Jesus, He will go places you don't want to go. He will do things you don't think He should do. But I can also promise you this. He has the words of life. And if you want to live life to the fullest, it's only in the footsteps of the Savior. And when you don't understand what He's doing, you can trust that He is the Son of God. I know this. The disciples didn't think that one day they'll be running because the Son of God is getting nailed to a tree. Can you imagine being there? They, they know He's the Son of God. They see His power. They see that He's healed all types of disease and sickness. They see a dead man, Lazarus, who's been dead and buried four days, come out of the grave, and it wasn't a hard thing for Jesus. But then, following Jesus, they see Him nailed to a cross. And I don't think they thought it was good news at that time. Do you? You want to know when I know they thought it was good news? In three days. When he comes out of the tomb, and the first step he takes is on the head of the serpent. And now we no longer have to fear sin and death and the enemy, because we know the one who crushes snakes.
Who do you say Jesus is? How do you respond to his invitation to follow him? Are you living a life of repentance, turning from sin and believing the gospel? That Jesus is your righteousness? That before God, the only hope you have is what Jesus has done for you? Believe that. And then walk with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your son. Father, I pray that you help us understand who Jesus is and help us be faithful and repenting on a day-by-day basis and believing in the gospel on a day-by-day basis and following after Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.